I love French fries. I always say, if I die, I will add on my tombstone and I'll have fries with that. Hey, everybody. You are listening to Radio Cherry Bomb. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, coming to you from Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center in the heart of New York City. Today's guest is Joanne Molinaro, who some of you might know better as the Korean vegan. Joanne had been blogging for several years, but really blew up when she started sharing her stories and recipes on TikTok. Now Joanne's got millions of followers and she has a brand new cookbook that will be out tomorrow. Joanne joins us in just a minute to talk about her book, her journey, and more. Thank you to our friends at Kerrygold for supporting Radio Cherry Bomb. We'll hear a word from our pals in Ireland in just a minute. This coming weekend, October 16th and 17th, at the brand new Ace Hotel Brooklyn, Cherry Bomb is hosting Cooks and Books, a celebration of the season's hottest cookbooks and authors. The Korean Vegan will be joining us, along with so many other Cherry Bomb favorites, Claire Saffitz, Sophia Rowe, Dory Greenspan, Missy Robbins, Natasha Pikowitz, Top Chef winner Kelsey Bernard-Clark, and Zoe Ajanya, just to name a few. We've got talks, panels, and demos. I'll be interviewing Hetty McKinnon, which I'm super excited about. I love Hetty, and I can't wait for the panels. I am definitely a panel nerd. We've got the art of the biography with the biographers of Julia Child, James Beard, and Anthony Bourdain, a New Wave Bakers panel, and a conversation about the mystery and history of Princess Pamela. Who, you might ask? Well, come and find out. You can snag tickets to the individual events or grab an all-access pass for $50. Visit cherrybomb.com for more, and I hope to see you this weekend. Special thanks to Le Creuset and Maple Hill Creamery for supporting Cooks and Books. If you'd like to stay at the Ace Hotel this weekend, use promo code CHERRYB, that's the letter B, for 15% off when booking at acehotel.com. Stay tuned for a word from Kerrygold, and we'll be right back with Joanne Molinaro. Kerrygold is delicious, all-natural butter and cheese, made with milk from Irish grass-fed cows. Our farming families pass their craft and knowledge from generation to generation. I'm fifth generation. It goes back over 250 years. This traditional approach is the reason for the rich taste of Kerrygold. Enjoy delicious new sliced or shredded Kerrygold cheddar cheese. Available in mild or savory flavors at a retailer near you. Find your nearest store at kerrygoldusa.com. Joanne, welcome to Radio Cherry Bomb. I am so excited to be here. Can't wait. I am so excited. I might be more excited than you are. <laughs> I ran out to grab a coffee and I looked at my phone. One of my closest friends had just texted me and she said, Do you know the Korean vegan? <laughs> <laughs> and she sent me a podcast you had done. And I said, very funny that you send me that. I'm interviewing her in 20 minutes. You're blowing up. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. How serendipitous uh, that your close friend uh, sent that interview to you. And I, like I said, I'm so looking forward to becoming more enmeshed with the Cherry Bomb family. Aww. But we're so excited you'll be at Cherry Bomb Cooks and Books. I am really looking forward to seeing you and Sophia Rowe and so many of our good friends. Well, I honestly, I mean, can think of fewer ways, can't think of really a better way to celebrate not just the book, but, you know, my family, my mom and dad are going to be there. And, oh. you know, I'll be demonstrating this fabulous dish with this, you know, 
amazing woman. I was just talking to Sophia yesterday. I'm like, your voice is so confident and you're so beautiful and you're so supportive. And I'm just so excited to be doing this with her. Oh, isn't Sophia the best? Like I mentioned, you are blowing up and most people are not overnight successes. When someone gets called an overnight success, they have been working for years to get where they are and honing their craft. When did you become the Korean vegan? Well, I started the blog in 2016. Mm-hmm. So it in in some relative to some things, yes, that is a very short period of time. I think that some people think that, oh, you know, she started her TikTok last year and that's when the Korean vegan started. And so it's only been like a year. But in fact, I've been, you know, doing the Korean vegan, sharing recipes and sharing stories about my family for over four and a half years, mm-hmm. um, actually over five years. That's been going on for a while, but there was a pretty dramatic reinvention of the media or the medium, I should say, uh, that I used to share my recipes and my stories last year through TikTok. And that is when all of a sudden a lot more people uh, were exposed to the Korean vegan than previously. Exactly. What made you take the jump or take the leap over to TikTok? You know, I was a consumer of TikTok. I will say I had read an article in the paper about how TikTok like single-handedly like foibled one of these, uh, you know, political events. And, you know, I thought that was sort of funny, but also fascinating. And I was also seeing a lot of TikTok videos being replayed on other social media platforms. And again, many of them were about this sort of tongue-in-cheek but no less effective form of activism. And so I wanted to kind of see that firsthand. And that's why I joined TikTok. And once you join TikTok, you very quickly become inspired by the other content creators on there. And I was, which is why I finally decided, well, let me see what I can do here on TikTok and posted my own videos. Amazing. And you really had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, you can't predict TikTok success. No, you, you really cannot. I mean, you can't even predict the sustainability of that success. Like there's nothing predictable about TikTok. I feel like the quote algorithm, right, Mm -hmm. is so different from any other social media platforms that we've all kind of grown used to that there really is sort of a black box feel to it. And you just got to have faith and believe in what you're doing. Yeah. And now we all know how fraught all social media is for so many different reasons, including the, the, the Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp shutdown, but it just shows how reliant we all are. For those of us who kind of make our careers from social media, that was definitely scary. It was such a strange moment because we had so many things going on on that Monday. The Ritual podcast had come out. The Washington Post article had just come out. And we were planning on rolling all of this out onto our various social media platforms. And then, of course, it was like, okay, well, I guess I'm relegated to LinkedIn and Twitter (laughs) right now. But... We also had a newsletter that was going out that day. And, you know, that goes out to quite a few tens of thousands of people on the Korean Vegan blog. And my husband was like, well, thank God that you invested Mm -hmm. in that newsletter because it only goes to show you really have to diversify your portfolio when it comes to this kind of, like you said, day job. Absolutely. So back to TikTok, you know, you had your blog for several years, but TikTok obviously was different because... You would be telling these stories that you had been telling, but in person. And that's a whole different level of putting yourself out there in terms of emotion, in terms of the feedback you get from people. But obviously you decided we're ready for that. What was that like to put yourself out there in a visual sense? That's a really good question. 
like you said, there's no way to predict anything. Like I was like, who's going to see this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like no one's going to watch me. So in some sense, I felt a little bit safe doing that because it was such a new platform for me. And I had, you know, very few followers and I was like, it's okay. I'll just put it out there and just flex my creative muscles. But then when it started getting attention, I had this total like freak out moment where I was like, I don't want any more followers. I don't want any more viewers. Like I don't want to go viral anymore. It's too scary. Like I I just don't want to be seen by so many eyes. And I had to have that sort of kind of talk with myself where like, what are you doing this for? Like, what what do you want out of this? And you need to get comfortable really quickly with this if this is what you want to pursue. And after that, it allowed me, or I should say it motivated me to be far more intentional about what I was putting out there because I knew that there was a potential for millions of people to see what I was putting out there. Mm -hmm. How do you protect yourself emotionally? Because you really tell some personal stories. And I, I wonder that every time... I see one of your videos. I just feel like you must be so drained afterwards, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're energized. I won't say that I'm energized. You're probably more correct when you say that it is draining. It can be draining because some of these stories, like you say, require me to go back into pockets of my life that perhaps I'm I'm not always as inclined to visit on a regular basis. I share these stories because I want people to feel like they're not alone. And in order to really impart that message, I do have to reach into and get connected with feelings that aren't always pleasant. But what helps, and I think what does protect me in many ways, is hearing from people like you or other women in particular, other folks who've struggled with the same things saying, you've done it. I don't feel alone. This resonates with me. Thank you for sharing this because I didn't know how to share it and I needed it to be shared. So when I hear that and when I see that in my DMs or in my comments, the cost that I incur emotionally, a lot of that is kind of healed when I hear those things. You also started doing TikTok at a time when things were becoming increasingly difficult for the AAPI community. And I have a number of friends on Instagram, well, friends in real life, but on Instagram, they deal with a lot of harassment and Mm. it continues to sadden and shock me. And I, I know it probably shouldn't. I know you deal with that too. And I'm just wondering how you deal with that and what advice you have for people who are dealing with racist behavior on these social media platforms. It is so hard sometimes uh, to deal with that. Of, of all the things that probably upset me the most and like literally keep me up at night and cause me to phone my therapist is, is kind of that sort of thing. I was reading um, a really good book the other day and, and the gentleman was talking about, you know, some advocates, you have to understand that when they advocate on behalf of a group that they are a part of, then they're doing double duty, right? Because they not only are using their platform and their voice to advocate on behalf of a historically oppressed group, but they also have to deal with the oppression on top of that, oftentimes as a result of that, Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, I always get so angry uh, and so hurt by it because I love my country so much. And so it's like personal almost to me. And I think that What I have learned to do is I'm a zero to 60 miles per hour girl. (laughs) 
when when my emotions come, I react. And what I'm trying to learn how to do is, okay, go to 60 and then dial it back because you're not going to be an effective advocate if you're constantly at that emotional level. Sometimes you do need to pull it back and figure out how to communicate the correct message in a way that will impact the most amount of hearts. Sometimes you have to be emotional and it's okay to be at 60 and communicate at 60, but sometimes it's not. So that's been something that I have been trying to learn for People who have to deal with that on a regular basis, honestly, having somebody like a professional therapist can really help. And if you can't find a therapist, having a friend, you know, that can just be a sounding board or even just listen to you rant and vent about it can also be really, really helpful. Don't try to do it alone is my best advice. All right. In terms of the zero to 60, as you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, well, Joanne has some special skills that she can pull out of her box when she has to deal with this because you are a lawyer by trade. So you're very good at at arguments and getting your point across, (laughs) things like that. We love a career changer here at Cherry Bomb. So many women in our community have changed careers And some folks might be surprised to know that you, I mean, you're still a lawyer. You passed the bar, so you're technically a lawyer. You're not practicing today, though, right? I would say that what I said to someone yesterday, it was actually one of the highlights of my day was like, oh, hi, I'm the Korean vegan. Oh, and I lawyer on the side. (laughs) (laughs) So that's probably more of an accurate description. I still, uh, like you said, I have maintained my bar status and I intend to uh, continue doing that. I think that being a lawyer is part of who I am and is part of the Korean vegan. So at this point, I'm not practicing full time, but I remain open to potentially taking on new matters or at least counseling people as a lawyer on a case-by-case basis. Good to know for all of us who might need lawyers out there. What kind (laughs) of law did you use to practice? So I was a commercial litigator uh, who specialized in antitrust class action lawsuits, bankruptcy uh, disputes, and fraud litigation. Wow. Did I read you had worked on like the second biggest Ponzi scheme case? Yeah, it was a, it was the second largest Ponzi scheme case filed under the United States Bankruptcy Code. I represented the Liquidating Trust Committee in defending against claims. It was uh, one of the best cases that I'd ever had a chance to work on. Wow. How did you become a lawyer? When did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? What was it about you that you thought would make a good lawyer? I think in a word, uh, the reason I became a lawyer was panic. I (laughs) graduated a year early from college and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I didn't, I wasn't prepared. I just knew that, oh my God, isn't this when people start moving out and not relying on their parents now and doing things like paying for their own insurance (laughs) and stuff? And I didn't know what to do. So I kind of was like, well, what are the you know, three main options that have been, you know, proposed to me, doctor, business person, lawyer. And by process of elimination, basically, I was like, I don't want to be a business person. I faint at the sight of blood, so I can't be a doctor. So I guess that leaves lawyer. And I studied for my LSATs, applied to law school. Everything happened very quickly before I could really take the time to think about it. And that's basically how I became a lawyer. Wow. Okay. Was there anything about you 
that now when you look back, you're like, oh, the signs were there that I would make a good lawyer or you were just exhibiting certain things that lend themselves to being a good lawyer? I think that certainly at that time, anxiety was a big driver into why I chose you know, being a lawyer, because you know, one of the things about law school, it's you go to law school, you apply for jobs and you get a job and that's it. Like there's, it's like a very like set path and there was very little room for like discretion. And that's what you want sometimes when you're anxious is don't give me choices. I want as few choices as possible. I just want someone to tell me what to do, particularly when you're recently graduated from college and you're like, I'm not ready to make my own decisions, Mm -hmm. right? But I think, you know, to your much more nuanced question, I had been very opinionated, i.e. disobedient, uh, according to my parents, uh, since I was a very little girl. And in retrospect, I've been thinking about this a lot as I continue to evolve into my role as an advocate for the things that I actually really care about. I think I have been that person since I was a little girl. I was always the one who, you know, got in the middle of a fight. You know, if I saw a little person being bullied by an older kid on the playground, I was always the one who, when I saw somebody being, you know, racially attacked, getting in between and saying, no, you don't get to do that while I'm here. I remember once I was in a nursing home visiting my grandmother and and one of the nurses just started screaming at one of the grandpas in there. Nobody said anything. I was like, how is this happening that nobody's saying anything? And I finally, it wasn't my grandpa. I got out there and I was like, you have to stop. This is unacceptable. Like, I don't know who this person is and I don't know who you are, but I'm not allowing this to happen. So, and that was when I was young, it was long before I was a lawyer. And so that sort of instinct I think has always been in me. So However much I like to say that it's accidental, I don't think it was really accidental that I decided to be a lawyer. Let's jump forward and talk about this beautiful cookbook that is coming out very, very soon. You know, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. This is kind of a cookbook question, but not, you know, not only did you kind of, for some of us, just appear magically, you know, seemingly (laughs) so on TikTok last year, but you also did so with this full aesthetic that is so your own, like your work doesn't look like anyone else's, your lighting is your own, that comes through loud and clear in the book. I mean, can you describe what the Korean vegan aesthetic is? Because it's definitely a thing. That is so like validating because I have to say I was so insecure about my photography. I'm not a photographer. as I'm a lawyer, so I'm not a professional photographer. And I was learning to be a better photographer as I shot the book. You know, that was such a process for me. And I have to tell you, my aesthetic was not very popular on Instagram. It wasn't this bright, like, oh, everything's sunny and beautiful. It was more just like, Sometimes you have to cook when you're not feeling good about yourself. Sometimes cooking is about healing, you know, and and it's about facing some of the darker parts of our life. And and that's really what the Korean vegan aesthetic is about. It's about being introspective and using food and cooking as a vehicle to look inside a little bit and sometimes grappling with the things that aren't perfect. Our food isn't perfect, you know? And so... That's really what the aesthetic is. There were so many times along the way where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to give up. 
nobody likes these moody photographs. I'm the only one who apparently likes them. I'm just going to start doing what everybody else is doing. And, you know, I had to hear from people like my husband, who is an artist, and he would say, no, you stick to what you're doing. Do not compromise your vision. This is who you are. So it is incredibly uh, validating, heartening, and and personally rewarding when I hear people like you say that they actually notice that. No, it's it's very impressive. It's it's very hard to have a look that is distinctively yours. And now I see things and I'm like, oh, that's you know, that's obviously Joanne. That's the oh, Korean that's vegan. So great. <laughs> so tell us about the book. What is the Korean vegan cookbook all about? So the Korean cookbook has like 80 plus recipes, a couple of which you've probably have seen on TikTok, um, but the vast majority of which are pretty much brand new or more kind of advanced, nuanced versions of things that I've kind of simplified for social media and kind of layered over those recipes Uh, Very much like my TikTok videos are stories about my mom and my dad and me and my grandparents. Even my little brother makes an appearance here and there. So if you think about it, it's really just my TikTok in book form. That's kind of what I tell people. And I know that because it was my first book, like whether it's a cookbook or any other kind of book, because it was my first book, I really did think a lot about well, what are my favorite books like growing up? You know, what are the books that I love to read? And they were always really, really good stories that sort of had this ability to kind of transport you into a totally different place in the world and in, in somebody's life. And that's really what I tried so hard to accomplish with this book is, you know, through the photographs and through the stories, even the head notes to the recipe, I want readers to feel like they've been dropped into this other beautiful world that they haven't seen or experienced before. What are some of those books you're referencing? Anne of Green Gables, (laughs) for sure. Count of Monte Cristo, uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, I mean, these are, you know, the classics, right? Like every book that had a penguin on it, that was the book for me when I was growing up. You mean Penguin as in Penguin Random House? The uh, yeah, yeah, but you know yeah. the Penguin Classic series. Like yes. that's what my mm-hmm. mom taught me. She's a huge voracious reader, and she always told me, "Okay, the book with the penguin on it. That's that's those are the good books." So I grew up like literally just going through the like, oh, penguin, pull it out, and I'd read it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. When you were saying that, I like Narnia popped in my head. You know, yeah. The, oh the my Narnia gosh, Chronicles. I love those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a few questions I always love to ask about recipes. I would love to know what's a recipe that is deeply personal to you that's in the cookbook. So I would say there are a lot of recipes that are really personal to me because, again, this was my first cookbook. And in that way, it was so fun because I could be like, oh, I'm just going to pick all the recipes that I, you know, have like a special meaning to me and like that I really love to eat. And so a lot of them have incredible personal meaning to me. I would say one that sort of sticks out. And I remember when I wrote the head note to this, like my editor was like, I don't know about this, Joanne. <laughs> but I kind of was stuck to my guns about it. And I was like, no, this is important to me. And it was the tteokguk recipe, the tteokmanduguk recipe. And if you're Korean, then you know tteokmanduguk has a very special role in our cuisine. It is the dish that, you know, is served on New Year's. And uh, the tteok, the rice in the soup is supposed to represent not just blessings, right? Because rice is, you know, of course, about sustenance, Right. But it's also about purity. It's about starting over. You know, with the new year, you get a blank slate. All of those mistakes and the heartache from the prior year, you can start anew. 
And I remember one year, it was the year that I was scheduled to get married. Four months before my wedding, I went into my parents' house and I was so excited about takuk because I had gone every year to my mom's house to eat takuk on New Year's Day. And I was waiting for them to serve me this bowl and they sit down at the table and they have this beautiful big bowl of takuk that my mom had made and she slides it over to me. But then she slides over to me this card with her handwriting, Joanne. And I was like, oh, do I get money this year too? Because that's, you know, also... Korean tradition as the children get, you know, some money on New Year's Day. So I was like, well, it's been a few years since that has happened to me. So I open the envelope and it's a card and it's my, you know, mother's handwriting uh, and her signature and my dad's signature at the bottom. And it's basically this written exhortation to not go through with my wedding in four months. And I was like, how dare you? And we should say this is your first marriage. My first marriage. Not not your current husband. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This did not happen with a subsequent marriage, but this is a very like fraught conversation and it did not go well. And I ended up screaming at my parents and left without eating any of the takuk because I was so angry. And, you know, of course, for those who are familiar with my story, they definitely had some foresight there. You know, they were trying to protect their daughter and I just was so stubborn and I didn't want to listen to them. So that dish... I can't ever make or eat that dish without thinking of that moment where my parents loved me so much that they wanted to give me more than the food, but that I was so unwilling to accept it at that time. I I mean, I think in retrospect, I probably had to go through what I did in order to be the person that I am today, but I love that they tried, you know? It's so interesting that they chose to write it down and deliver it to you that way also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my mom. She's the writer. You know, she's always been a, a writer and a reader. And I think that she understands the power of the written word. Unfortunately, it was not powerful enough that day. Well, I'm excited to meet your parents when they come to uh, yeah. to cook some books. Okay, tell me the recipe that your friends and family would say, oh, that's the most Joanne recipe in the book. Oh, wow. That's like really, oh my gosh. Okay, I would say sundubu. <laughs> The silken tofu stew. When I graduated college, my girlfriends actually bought me a tupegi, which is like the traditional um, earthenware pot that you cook all the chiques in because they're like, you're the sundubu girl. Every single Friday, like that's what you eat at the restaurant. I was like obsessed with sundubu chike. And it was probably the first recipe my mom ever taught me how to make. It was the first Korean recipe that I veganized when I went vegan. And I eat it a lot. I think a lot of people would probably associate me with, oh, she's the girl who makes that really spicy, fiery looking (laughs) silken tofu stew. (laughs) Walk us through how you make it. My mother, she taught me to make it a little bit differently than I think I've seen, at least on you know YouTube and other places. She always starts with a little bit of sesame oil, which I always get a little bit nervous about because you know it has a, a lower burn point than you know extra virgin olive oil. So I'm always like, oh, okay, I have to act really quickly in order to make sure it doesn't burn. And so she always starts out with a little bit of sesame oil, and then she throws in the kochukaru, which is the Korean pepper powder, and that's really the base of this stew. 
And she throws that in and she roasts it in that sesame oil. So it kind of loses that sort of raw flavor when when you don't do that. And then the trick is you can only do that for a short period of time because the kochukaru is also fragile and it will burn and it'll turn brown and get bitter. So you have to really keep an eye on it. And then you throw in your aromatics like your garlic, your onions, and then you throw in your vegetables, which is what's going to give that broth its body, right? Like the zucchini. And I also add potatoes. Nobody else adds potatoes to their sundubuchige. I add potatoes because I'm a potato girl and I love potatoes. But also like one thing I learned about broth is potatoes add a great deal of earthiness and body to a broth. So I throw in sometimes a whole potato diced up and then you add a little bit of soy sauce for that umami and sort of that saltiness. And then you add your broth. I have a homemade vegetable broth in the cookbook as well. And then you add your silken tofu and make sure to include the brine of the tofu because that also adds to the flavor of your broth. And you add your scallions on top. You can add some jalapeno peppers for extra heat and, you know, sort of salinity. And it's just this incredibly enveloping, velvety, sort of wonderful um, stew that just really sticks to your bones, particularly like on a winter day. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm so hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> I love that you called yourself a potato girl. Why are, oh, totally. why are you a potato girl, Joanne? You know, like growing up, I'd always be, oh, can you add potato to that? Like everything she made, I was like, add potato. Like, why are you using radish? That is just a a tease because it looks like potato, but it's not a potato. And you love sweet potato too. I love some, she Mm -hmm. loves sweet potatoes and that I get from her. I mean, she obviously has this sort of sentimental, personal connection to sweet potatoes and she eats one every single day. I'm a fan of both the regular potato and the sweet potato. So, you know... I love French fries. I always say, if I die, I will add on my tombstone and I'll have fries with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, last recipe question. You know, when we did the Cherry Bomb Cookbook, it was so interesting to see what the popular recipes wound up being. Mm And you can never, well, maybe some people can, but I, I never could have predicted like what people would start making and sharing, you know, on social media. What do you think will be the most popular recipe? I would have to say, and I have some data to support this, so this is a little <laughs> bit of cheating. I will probably say the kampung tofu is going to be the most popular because it already is. I mean, that is one that I was asked to include in the book mm-hmm. because it is so popular. It is one of my most popular TikTok videos. I think it has like over 8 million views. Uh, it is my most popular YouTube video. Um, and it is a recipe that I have now seen so many people do. Um, so I do think that that will continue to be very popular. So Minus that sort of cheater answer, um, I would say that probably uh, the pecan pot pie would be Yes, my... you're going to be demoing that one. Yeah. So... I, and because it is so easy to make, I mean, if you don't make your own pie crust, if you do, then hopefully you're good at that <laughs> and you've done it before because that can be a little bit um, tricky. But if you buy a store-bought pie crust, the rest of the recipe, like you could literally make while you're like half asleep. It's so easy. And then it comes out and you feel like freaking Ina Garten. You're like, oh my God, <laughs> I could be like the barefoot contestant goddess <laughs> if I wanted to. So walk us through that. So repeat the name of it because people might be like pecan pie. And it's like, no, there's a little extra. There There is a little extra. Yeah, it's pecan pot 
pie, which is sort of a play on words like, you know, chicken pot pie, but it's actually not pot like P-O-T, it's P-A-H-T, which refers to the uh, red bean paste, which is very popular in Korean desserts like Korean rice cakes, pupingsu, like the shaved ice and things like that. And that's what I use as part of my filling. And I think that does a couple of things. First of all, it makes the pie foolproof because we all know that making pecan pie is hard because you wonder if it's going to properly set. And this bean paste sort of takes the guesswork out of that. And then on top of that, it sort of cuts through the sweetness a little bit. I often hear this, the biggest complaint about pecan pies is, oh, you know, it's just a little too sweet for me. This red bean paste sort of kind of mellows the sweetness a little bit so that you get this really balanced flavor. Oh, I love that. I can't wait to try it because I love pecan pie, but I'm with you. Sometimes you bite into a pecan pie and you're like, as much of a sweet tooth as I have, even some pecan pies are just sugar bombs. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a showstopper. And that's another reason why I think it'll be popular because it's one of those things that when you take it to a dinner party or your Thanksgiving, you know, potluck or something, everyone's going to be like, what is that? I want a slice of that. And I did have the chance to make it for uh, a dinner party uh, a couple of months ago and everyone loved it. And again, it was just so simple to make. Joanne's going to be showing us how to make it at Cooks and Books uh, this coming weekend. So I cannot wait. And for all of you who are already planning your Thanksgiving and holiday menus, write this one down because you you definitely might want to try that for your friends and family for the holidays. All right. So what else about the book? Anything else you want to tell us about it that we should know? Kind of a pertinent to the book. I I'm really excited to meet people. That is like so exciting, which is why I'm so freaking excited about this cherry bomb event that's happening in New York. And I've been like trying to get, you know, people galvanized like, hey, like you can meet my mom and dad. We're going (laughs) to do cooking events. And so I'm just so excited to meet people. We're going to be, you know, starting in Chicago. Then we go to New York to do, you know, a couple of events, including the cherry bomb, which is I think the only one where I'm doing an actual cooking demonstration in person. So that is really, really cool. And, you know, and then we go to LA and, you know, who knows where the wind will take me after that. But I guess I'm, I'm just so excited that, you know, after a year and a half, almost two years of being kind of cloistered in our homes, you know, hopefully we're starting to feel at least somewhat safe enough to, again, responsibly start interacting again in person. Yeah, absolutely. I think of all the authors who put books out over the past year and a half and didn't get to go on tour and didn't get to meet people. I mean, we did, oh my gosh, we we visited over a dozen cities when we did our cookbook and like you said, that was such a special part of putting a cookbook into the world, getting to meet everybody and, you know, nerd out on recipes and ingredients and everything. Totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big nerd in everything that I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nerding out is a phrase that's near and dear to my heart. <laughs> exactly. I probably use it too much, you know, not to keep talking about cooks and books, but I'm a giant book nerd. And, you know, when you were talking about being younger and pulling the Penguin books because you knew that was sort of a symbol of quality and exciting storytelling. If it weren't for libraries, I don't know what would have happened to me as a kid. Like I spent so much time in, in the public library and would... The librarians were so kind to me. They would let me take out, you know, a whole stack of books and I'd put them in my, the, the basket of my bicycle and I'd bike home and I'd like just devour those books. And um, I'm just so happy to be doing an event that celebrates books and the people who write books. And 
you know, storytelling in any kind just thrills me. And I think that's why I'm such a big fan of yours. You know, you have you have just found a different way to do storytelling and, and people have reacted, you know, so positively to to the storytelling that you're doing. And whether it's through TikTok or like you said, the the head notes of your recipes or your blog. Um, I just, I, yeah, I'm just a fan. I'm a fan, Joanne. Oh, that's so sweet. I love uh, nerding out with fellow book nerds. I could talk about books forever, exactly. but I like you. I found a lot of solace in, in the library. I'm sure you feel the same way. You literally can drown yourself in words. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so nice. I never heard anyone put it that way, you know, about being alone. Like you're never alone if you have a book. Yes. Aww, you're never that's... alone. And when you have cookbooks, you'll never go hungry. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Unless you're like some of us who, who you know, kind of collect cookbooks and then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I'm not cooking through all these books and I own <laughs> all these cookbooks, but I don't know. I feel like cookbooks, they're special. I get so much out of them, even if I don't cook from them. Oh, for sure. They're inspiration. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. I mean, they can, like I said, they can transport you even if you don't eat the food out of them. Um, I have a lot of cookbooks like that too, where I'm just like, I'm just going to flip through this because it's so beautiful. Let me ask you a few more food questions before we do yeah. the speed round and let you uh, let you go. Oh, tell us what you were making for lunch. I know there was a little, a little lunch snafu. Exactly. So... I am making my uh, wasabi prugogi melt, which is actually a recipe from the cookbook. It is a take on a sandwich that I used to make for my family all the time before I went vegan. I used to take just like, you know, deli sliced roast beef and a little bit of, you know, wasabi paste and mayo and, you know, cheese and melt it all together into this like ooey gooey deliciousness, right? What I decided to do when I tried to incorporate that into the cookbook was, you know, well, instead of using deli sliced roast beef, why don't I just use the leftover brugogi that I have sitting in my fridge, which is, you know, um, my plant-based version of Korean uh, dish called brugogi, which is um, grilled meat, it's grilled flank steak marinated in Korean barbecue sauce. I was planning on eating that for lunch. I'm hoping that I haven't burnt it to a crisp. (laughs) I walked away from the stove for a second and uh, forgot to turn it off. Uh, Hopefully that is not a sign of my age. (laughs) (laughs) I always have to set alarms on my clock. You know what it is? I don't think it's age as much as like too much multitasking. That is exactly right. I had a lot of things happening at the same time, but that is what I plan to eat for lunch, assuming that it is salvageable. And what is your bread vehicle? So I have this really great recipe for milk bread or vegan milk bread in the cookbook. And my recommendation is to, you know, either make it and use that or, you know, store-bought you know, your favorite version of that. Although I don't know that there are plant-based versions out there, at least not in the United States. You can get it in Korea, but I don't know about the US, which is why I include my own recipe. But that's like a really good fluffy bread is really great for that because it's sort of like a grilled cheese sandwich. Like it's a melt, right? If you don't have that or you don't have access to milk bread, you know, just a really nice kind of like larger piece of bread. I'm using right now like a a sliced kind of uh, Italian bread. And it's really, really good. And, you know, you just butter both sides and you get that really nice textured on the outside. And then in the middle, you've got the gooey cheese with the brugogi and, you know, the sauce. It's it's Mm. pretty remarkably delicious. Oh my gosh, it sounds so good. You said the word Italian and it just reminded me, your husband's Italian-American and he's a pianist, right? Yes. Does he play in the house? Oh my God. 
Yes. <laughs> Having been stuck inside the house with him, a concert pianist, it sounds good on paper, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a great deal of repetition that goes into uh, <laughs> I hadn't becoming. Thought about that. <laughs> yes. And so uh, for a long time, now he has uh, resumed teaching in person. He's a piano professor at Loyola University. And so he's out of the house a lot more, but for a very long time, about a year and a half, I mean, hearing the same scale oh, over, gosh. Okay. And over and over again for hours was a little bit like, whoa, okay, earphones. <laughs> but you use a lot of his music in your videos. I do. I mean, it's nice uh, because I love his music. Um, he's a classical pianist and you know, he, he loves Bach. I love Bach. He loves Beethoven. I love Beethoven. So it's very nice having this kind of catalog of music to add to my food videos. And he's always very proud of that too, as he should be. He's one of the greatest musicians alive and I love sharing his work with my audience. Mm -hmm. How about culinarily? Are there many culinary mashups? between you two? You know, he's not a, he's not a very, um, practiced technician in the kitchen. <laughs> so I'll leave that's it at so that. That's so polite. <laughs> the yes. way you put that, Joanne. And I always say, that's okay. You need to save your hands for the piano. You know, he does inspire a lot of the recipes in the cookbook, uh, just because I sort of, you know, I'd always loved Italian cuisine, but meeting his family and, you know, getting to go to Italy multiple times with him and his family really opened my eyes to, like Korean food, the versatility of Italian food, particularly from a plant-based perspective, how easy it is to really veganize. And so there are a lot of kind of representations of me and Anthony in the book, as in there's a little bit of Italian, there's a little bit of a Korean in this recipe. I was actually just pulled up the recipe for angry penne pasta, which is, you know, penne pasta with gochujang and gochukaru. So I'm really excited about that one. And tell us why you call it angry. You know, so pasta arrabbiata, you know, mm -hmm. I think that is, you know, a reference, a loose allusion, I guess, to pasta arrabbiata. Anthony and I used to go to this great little Italian cafe before we were vegan when we were first dating. And one of my favorite dishes there was the pasta arrabbiata. And there was like this very scary looking pepper on top of it. And I was like, oh God, this is going to be really spicy. And it was spicy, but like in a really good way. And, uh, you know, so that's why I called it angry penne pasta. It's just, a you know, sort of like a, a loose homage to that arrabbiata. But again, it's my version because instead of using sort of the traditional Italian ingredients, I've incorporated gochujang and gochukaru, which are the traditional Korean ingredients mm. for adding heat. Oh my gosh, I have to try that recipe. All right, let's do a speed round. Tell us a treasured cookbook in your cookbook collection. Oh, treasured cookbook is probably The Food Lab <laughs> by Kenji Lopez. I love that book. I go back to that book very, very frequently, especially for his treatments of vegetables, obviously. That's a great one. That That's a book that if you really love cookbooks and cooking, I feel like everybody should own. Yeah, that's yeah. a great one. Very mm -hmm. practical. Oldest thing in your fridge? Oldest thing in my fridge is probably, oh, geez, um, the gochukaru that my mom brought from Korea, that from the farms, she told me that in order to keep it fresh, you should keep a good chunk of it in the refrigerator. Music in the kitchen, yes or no? I would say yes. I like having a little bit of jazz in the kitchen when I'm cooking. It sort of relaxes me and like gets me in the mood. And so I always have like Ella Fitzgerald or, or you know, something like Billie Holiday kind of in the background, not too loud, but, you know, nice kind of background music. What was your last pantry purchase? 
My last pantry purchase was uh, another bottle of extra virgin olive oil. I feel like I go through it like every three days. I'm like, how do we, how, I like had four bottles and now I have nothing. Same. I'm like, (laughs) am I drinking it in my sleep? What is going on here? What are you streaming lately? Well, we just wrapped up Squid Game. I was basically peer pressured into watching that. Is it scary? It looks, I don't love scary and it looked scary. It's not scary. It's more shocking and very uh, gruesome. So like it doesn't hold any punches when it comes to the gross factor, but it's not scary. It's more just like, I'm trying to figure this out kind of thing. Um, So we just finished that. We haven't landed yet on our next uh, streaming indulgence. What is a dream travel destination? Dream travel destination is probably Vienna. I've always wanted to go there. Yeah. My husband concertized there and he always tells me that it's one of the most beautiful places he's ever been to. And certainly as a musician, you know, that area resonates with him, you know, very particular way. Um, So I definitely want to go there. My hope is that the next time we get to Europe, we always go to Italy first because that's our kind of like home base. And then we always kind of like a spoke on a wheel. We go somewhere else from Italy and we've been to London, we've been to Barcelona, you know, we've been to other cities in Italy other than Rome. And my hope is that the next time we get to visit Vienna. Last question. If you had to be trapped on a desert island with one food celebrity, who would it be and why? Oh, God. Food celebrity, uh, Padma Lakshmi. (laughs) Easily. Like always. (laughs) Because I think she's amazing and I've had a girl crush on her for so long. (laughs) Oh, she's very crushable. Totally. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. Joanne, thank you so much. This has been so much fun getting to know you better. And I really can't wait to see you in person in a few days. I can't wait either. And I really can't wait for you to try the pie because I think you'll really, really like it. And it always makes me so happy when people like it. Joanne, you're the bomb. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much to Joanne Molinaro for stopping by. Be sure to check out Joanne's debut book, The Korean Vegan Cookbook, out tomorrow. And maybe I'll see some of you at Cooks and Books this weekend. Please find me and say hi. It would be so great to meet you. If you haven't gotten tickets yet, visit cherrybomb.com. Thank you to Carrie Gold and Ace Hotel Brooklyn for supporting our show. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of Cherry Bomb Magazine. If you enjoyed this episode, we've got lots of other great ones, like last week's with Stanley Tucci. Radio Cherry Bomb is recorded at Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center in New York City. Thank you to Joseph Hazen, studio engineer for Newsstand Studios, and to our assistant producer, Jenna Sadu. Thanks for listening, everybody. You're the bomb.